This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday. It's news panel time. Let's bring in the panelists for the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Hello, friends. All right, let's jump right in. It's been a busy week in Ottawa. There are plenty of federal politics to round up, starting with the federal government introducing initial steps in a national pharmacare plan. The rollout will include diabetes medication and supplies. Access to birth control is also included. Here's Health Minister Mark Holland. Waking up in a country where every single woman has access to the contraception she needs to control her future is an absolutely critical part of having a just society. This is about health equity. It's also about affordability. Here's what NDP health critic Don Davies had to say. Canadians will be able to walk into a pharmacy, present their prescription, and walk out with the medicine and devices they need without any copayment or deductible on a universal basis through our public system. Joita, Michelle and I already tossed this topic around on Monday as some of the news broke over the weekend. But what do you think of this initial plan? Well, I mean, it is very promising and very ambitious. Uh, I think there are economic and uh, political ramifications that we can certainly get into. But I think on the face of it, it's a very ambitious first step. Uh, one in out of four Canadians that live with diabetes at the moment are unable to comply with treatment plans because they can't afford the supplies. So there's clearly a need there. And we know diabetes can cause a number of health conditions, if not adequately treated, including blindness. Uh, but also the step towards contraception is frankly long overdue. I think it uh, is a very important first step for, uh, it's a it's a very important step for women and sexual liberation and, and you know, women being able to make choices about when and how they get pregnant. So all in all, on the face of it, it's really great. Uh, I think a lot of the wrangling will really come down to the negotiations with the provinces. Um, there's a talk about creating a national formulary. So what will that actually end up looking like? And what sort of a relationship will um, Canada have as a purchaser with major pharmaceutical companies? And what are the what's the insurance industry saying about this? Because, uh, you know, health insurance plans is, is one of the ways in which many Canadians have up to this point paid for medication. So I'm sure they have something to say about it, but we can certainly get into it. Michelle, details were a smidge sparse when you and I spoke on Monday, but a lot of the reporting bore out yesterday yeah. what we thought we knew. Right? It's definitely a targeted approach. And one of the reasons why I believe it will have some success is targeted typically means attainable. Starting with a wide swath might have been yeah. too difficult. So my initial reaction could be a bit underwhelmed, but an appreciation of a targeted approach. I'm kind of with you. I had the same thought of yesterday of, well, well, I guess Dave and I don't have to walk anything back when the other <laughs> came out. I was actually... <laughs> I was actually a tiny bit surprised that that was kind of it. I remember, Dave, on Monday we were talking about how we knew 
the ADP had confirmed that contraception and diabetes would be the core of it, but there, there might be room for some more. And there wasn't. So it's now confirmed that it's just those two for now. But I'm kind of with you in that. I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to start really small and focused and expand from there. They've identified some pressing needs. You're, I think you're, I agree with you on the attainable aspect of it all. Um, I also think that there's major fiscal considerations that they're trying to work around. In fact, the finance minister has been pretty open about that, that they're trying to work within the $800 million that they've already budgeted for this phase of things, which in the scope of a program that's been pegged at 40 plus billion is a drop in the bucket, no question, but it makes sense just to scale it up, to see how that goes. We've seen some issues when other federal programs roll out, like the childcare program, for instance, all kinds of hiccups. So for something this major, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, starting small and ramping up seems to make sense and getting buy-in from the public too. Yeah. There, there, that way. There's been quite a bit of back and forth about how the industry might react to the economics of this, Joita. How do you mm. think the pharmaceutical industry might react to this? Well, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is, is um, not... Um, it's not the first time. This isn't their first rodeo. Let's just put it that way. I mean, out of the the developed sort of industrialized countries in the world, uh, with the exception of the U.S., Canada is one of the last to actually have a national pharmacare program. So the pharmaceutical industry does have some experience with dealing with the sort of situation. But I think if you remember, we've had... Uh, many stories in the news about pharmaceutical companies charging exorbitant prices for medication, often life-saving medication at that, and people having their backs to the wall because they have no choice but to pay those prices. I think if you look at uh, Canada becoming a significant purchaser, uh, it does uh, mean that the government would be in a better position to um, challenge pharmaceutical companies on some of those prices. And I think that's going to be a win for, for Canadians. So uh, there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. You're right. Um, it's not as widespread as maybe some people would have liked to see. It's an, uh, an impressive first step. Uh, but at least for now, it does even the playing field between these large multinational pharmaceutical companies and uh, and the average Canadian, if you've got the government coming in there as, as, a, as a significant purchaser. Just to offer a couple of uh, pieces of concrete example that Joeda alluded to there in regards to uh, stories of big price spikes, there was the EpiPen story from a couple of years ago where the prices of EpiPens spiked on users, as well as any insulin user will tell you uh, how those prices have spiked over the years as well. Mm -hmm. an insulin spike, if you will. Uh, Michelle, you and I... Uh, I, I am full of them today. <laughs> Michelle, you and I uh, also contemplated just a smidge some of the business side of this on Monday. The reaction, I find, has been pretty tame throughout the week. Like Joita said, pharmaceutical companies are no stranger to negotiating large-level deals with governments. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I raised one on Monday that I've continued to hear in a really, really small corner of things uh, of individuals potentially having better access through the private plans and being concerned about losing their superior coverage through this one. Uh, I've heard that in a couple of quarters, but nothing, it hasn't been a very loud chorus. But what has been interesting to me, I don't know if you guys have, have seen this too, but the provincial reaction is interesting. Mm. We've already had a couple of provinces who are saying, who are, are basically saying they're going to opt out even at this preliminary date. Um, Alberta and Quebec have both indicated they don't want to do that. And Ontario is taking a bit of a wait and see approach on this too. So there is resistance from some of the provinces, which I find kind of interesting, but also yeah. I, I don't know how much you guys will, and like these players will change over time. So 
some early resistance now doesn't necessarily mean to me that it's going to be a consistent set of resistance, but we'll see what happens there, I guess. Um, and yeah, in terms of other reaction, yes, it has been pretty muted, Dave. I agree with you. In fact, um, Pierre Poilievre, the opposition leader, uh, when asked about it yesterday, declined to comment. So uh, we haven't been hearing a whole lot on the opposition front of late. It, 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 some of this stuff, childcare, uh, pharmacare, dental care, you have to be careful if you're if you're mm -hmm. if you're at the top of the polls. You don't want to come out and say, "I'm going to cut this. I'm going to cut that. I'm going to cut this," because. This stuff is going to be fairly popular. This is going to be the right? kind of stuff that yeah. people are going to want. So you don't want to publicly come out. You, you might quibble with the way it's rolled out. You're going to wait till there's a bump in the road or a hiccup, but you don't necessarily want to come out and say, I don't want to give you these things when you're up in the polls by 17 points in the latest national <laughs> in the latest national totally. sur polling survey. Uh, Joita, whether it's provincial... In, in, in the interest of fairness, though, I do want to note that he might also have just wanted to take some time to review before weighing in. They're, 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 that is well, all. No, that, that's not... I don't want my politicians acting like that, Michelle. I want knee-jerk reactions. Uh, Joita, whether it's federal... Pulse decisions. <laughs> whether it's federal or provincial, what's your take on the politics? Well, I mean, it's unavo it's unavoidable because when you think about the politics, it's like, it's a lot like the dental care plan, right? You've got the NDP saying, look, look, we made this possible because of the confidence and supply agreement. Um, yeah. And so that's <laughs> going to be something that they're going to pitch as a win. But the people who are really going to, I think, get um, to take kudos for this one is the Liberal government, which is uh, responsible for implementation. Now, the question is, how are they actually going to go about implementing it? If they completely bungle it, uh, it then that's a whole other question. But otherwise, this is something that Canadians have been asking for for a very long time, and that coupled with dental care might be a significant uh, victory that that the Liberals will hold up in the lead up to the next election. Uh, with that said, the, the, the Tory reaction isn't really all that surprising either, because Pierre Poilievre doesn't want to be in the in the position of uh, getting Canadians to either it, they don't want to turn around and, and challenge it outright, obviously, um, but they also don't want to be put in a situation where people uh, are so terrified that they'll take away dental care or they'll take away pharmacare if the to Tories have voted into government uh, that you know they they voted another way so uh it's it's clearly one of those issues that i think has a lot of of popular appeal uh there's a lot of people who i think will be relieved to uh a be able to afford what they need and b not to be at the mercy of private insurance companies that's the other piece uh, around this uh, but political horse trading is, I think, just, you know, far for the course. Yeah, it's been, uh, I, I've done this to you guys a couple times in the last few weeks. It's been the two-year anniversary of a lot of things, including the confidence mm -hmm. and supply agreements. And there's a lot for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh to hang his hat on here after the course of the last couple of years, whether it be the pushing right? through of childcare, whether it be dental care, whether it be pharmacare. Is it exactly the plan that he would want or endorse? Maybe. Maybe not, but there's no matter what the outcome of the next election is for him and no matter what the future is for him in that party, when he goes to bed at night, he can sleep well knowing that he mm. advocated for a lot of change right? in this country, transformational change. Yes. And regardless of whatever happens in any election or whatever any polling data says, that I think so, that's something that he should take a lot of pride in, a lot of pride I agree. In. Oh my gosh! And he's, the way he's talked about it is even just it, going back to party history. Like his, I think his name will be mentioned. He never led the popular wave that a Jack Layton did. He wasn't as say fundamental as say Tommy Douglas, but 
it was his leadership, under his leadership, that some of those key priorities that he says have been NDP pillars since the party's inception yeah. have been pushed through. Yeah. Pharmacare being a big one of those. So that is like, it, 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 yeah, you're right. I, I think the Liberals will get the credit historically, but giving the NDP short shrift on this would not be fair either. Like I said, busy week in Ottawa. Let's pivot to something different. Earlier in the week, Canada's Justice Minister introduced the online Harms Act, Naira Act. Speak properly, Dave, you're a journalist. Naira Ahmed has the details. The Online Harms Act plans to create a digital safety commission and a new ombudsperson to advocate for users who have concerns about online safety. The long-promised Bill C-63 also seeks to amend the criminal code to introduce stiffer punishments for existing hate propaganda offences and amend the Canadian Human Rights Act to include online hate speech as discrimination. The proposed law would require companies to take down intimate images shared online without consent and content that sexually victimizes a child. Justice Minister Arif Virani took particular aim at social media companies. Profit cannot be prioritized over safety. Right now, it is too easy for social media companies to look the other way as hate and exploitation festers on their platforms. This bill will require platforms to do their part and to do better. Michelle, what's the big idea you want to explore here? So this is the second kick at the can at this particular issue for the government. So I, I thought it might be interesting to hear how everyone felt this had come along because there have there been a lot of changes. But more than that, online harm is an area that we've all had to navigate in some form, whether as a bystander or some of us even as targets, I'm afraid. Um, we know what, what, what internet culture is like. We know how toxic it can be. And this is just one of those issues where I, I, I look at all these measures and I think this is interesting and I wonder to what degree it will actually have impact. I know it's hard to speculate at this point, but th there's just there's so much here to unpack. There's so many civil liberties issues that are being raised around this already. This intersects with a lot of things and I just felt that knowing this group as I do, that we might all have something to say about it. <laughs> so l let's start with the effectiveness in practice, because I think mm -hmm. all three of us can acknowledge that the internet is a horrible, toxic place. Uh, as a uh, white male, I probably have a little bit of a different experience than you two do, but even <laughs> I can acknowledge that it's a pretty awful place as someone who spends a lot of time in the comments section. Uh, Joita, my bugaboo... You never uh, learn, do you, Dave? I never learn. Joita, my bugaboo on this is that a lot of onus is going to be kicked towards the Human Rights Commission, a quasi-judicial body that's already overwhelmed with cases that invariably is going, a lot of these cases are going to end up in other courts that are already backlogged. So although the principles underlying the act make a ton of sense to me, I worry this could get bogged down in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, that's the big concern that I have, too. But they are they are creating some um, offices, as you heard in the clip off the top there, just to try and alleviate some of that burden. And my hope is that with this regulation coming, with this with this piece of legislation, uh, rather than putting the onus on the court system or burdening the court system, there will be more of an emphasis on uh, platforms having to regulate content uh, more than they all more than they already are, um, rooting out content that is harmful. Uh, sexually explicit that might target children that's um propagates hate of any kind so if they can actually try and enforce in a way that uh leads to regulation uh 
and and, and holds platforms themselves accountable and nips the problem off at the at the root. I think that would be uh, really helpful. And I and the, the but the other problem that I see with this is that yes, granted, it's a, a way to regulate uh, Canadian websites and 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 things like that. But the internet is such a vast place. Oh, it's, yeah. it's just <laughs> it's just how do you actually how do you yeah. control all of it? That's my big concern. I mean, if someone's looking for that stuff, they can probably find it. This the dark web and things like that. If you if you really want the stuff, then you can go out and find it. Um, I I just don't know how effective enforcement will be, given how vast the internet is, yeah. and how I suspect the sphere of influence will be very limited, uh, limited only to Canadian websites and Canadian content for the most part. A lot of VPNs out there, a lot of virtual private networks out there that can make That's this it. even bigger, uh, chasing a rabbit down mm -hmm. a hole. Uh, Michelle, effectiveness, your thought. Yeah, um, similar thoughts. I, this will be this will be hard to enforce. I think uh, I, I the, there's some of the rationale that's gone into the new entities and resources that are being created uh, seem to have been done with some of that consultation that took place in mind. There's lots of talk around having recourse for people to have images taken down quickly uh, before they can go too viral or get too deeply embedded in the internet history. Um, so it seems like they're trying to take a broader approach and, and, and offer some more tools to address online harms in the short term, which is something that's certainly needed, uh, leaving things up to content providers and content companies to take down can, can take a long while. Um, but it's it all feels a little bit nebulous. So it's hard to get a sense of the impact the other thing in terms of impact that interests me is is a little related, of course, to online harms, but it's a little more of a niche part of this whole bill. And that's all the issues around hate crimes. Uh, we've been seeing a huge spike in hate crimes that's been documented by stats and police forces across the country. And this new legislation seeks to entrench a bit of a, a harsher definition for hate crimes to peg to the Supreme Court rulings and has a lot different sentences for hate crimes. That's a bit interesting to me, too. There's a lot of overlap with the criminal code. It's a bit confusing. Those are the pieces that has some civil rights groups up in arms at the same time, though. I do find it interesting because of the climate we're in, because of the fact that hate crimes are up or alleged hate crimes are way up. And uh, historically, the courts have, have it's been difficult to sort of treat those as hate crimes. They often get talked about as mischief charges or whatnot, and hate becomes an aggravating factor at sentencing. Uh, this offers a bit of a different path, and I find that one interesting, too, in light of the climate we're in. Regulation mm. in the modern context makes sense to, to a degree that you want your governments to be modernizing and evolving as society evolves. So I, again, I understand the underlying principles behind the regulations that are trying to be put in place here. I took a very unfair swipe at Conservative leader Pierre Polyev a few minutes ago. Here's where I will uh, give him his credit. He came out this week and said, regulation, these are police matters. Things like child pornography, this should be the police. Harassment, stalking, these are police matters. And Joita, I find some empathy and understanding in that position because at least anecdotally people report back a lot of terrible experiences interacting with the police when they're experiencing some kind mm -hmm. of online harm yeah. and i do find the position understandable to say hey cops do your jobs mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah i mean on on the, on uh as far as pierre polyev is concerned he also just he also took a swipe at this piece of legislation without actually having read it 
So that, you know, last, and he's had to since sort of soften his criticism. Um, the, it's worth noting that a lot of the sort of tough on crime and law and order issues is pretty standard conservative speak, um, but the issue is complicated. Uh, the police also has a lot on its plate, and they've often not had the tools to deal with the situation adequately. Um, and so it's not to say that it's not a police matter, but it's not just a police matter. And I think you're going to need a more sophisticated response to a problem that is uh, that has been allowed to get increasingly out of hand. Um, yeah. And so regulation is part of it as well. Uh, you know, getting the police involved in the right way at the right times in the right places is is a part of that response. Um, but one of the good things is that you know they have made uh, amendments to the definitions of of hate, uh, which is really important because you you, you want to define what hate is, but you also want to define what it's not. And so by by having this sort of narrow definition of hate, I think that would actually be uh, really helpful from a prosecution standpoint. Mm. But again, the biggest concern that I have is, you know, just what we talked about off the big, off the top. I mean, you can wrangle about free speech and whether this is a, a, a police matter or regulatory matter until we're blue in the face. But I just feel like enforcement is going to be such a challenge yeah. here that that's, that's what's going to keep me up at night. Michelle, your, your reaction right. to the law and order side? Yeah, I want to piggyback on something Joita said off the top. Is I kind of I I I take Pierre Poilievre's point entirely, but I do feel again like like you said, Dave, this is an area where police have historically not had the resources, or the means, or the will. You know, say what you will, but there were police have not historically gotten involved or been able to do a whole lot about it. And I see value in there's a, so much of online toxicity falls in a huge gray zone. But short of criminality, right? And and I feel like some of this, some of these measures, may be better equipped to tackle things that fall within that gray zone, things that do not necessarily fall within police jurisdiction, uh, but still require some kind of action. And this could be an additional resource, perhaps that could free up some other police responsibilities. Um, I, I, I I think it would be. I, I see this as as not quite the black and white issue that some people have portrayed it as. How about that? that I, I think that's a reasonable position. This okay. segment has already gone 24 minutes, but this question is worthwhile. But you you have to promise me both. You're going to go under a minute on your answers on this one. Michelle, was the... Only for 30 seconds tops. Was the online space ever truly a wonderful space, or is that rose-colored glasses? There were times when I had a great time. I, use, I, I miss old-timey Twitter pretty badly, to be honest, but... Yeah, I think that's nostalgia talking more than anything. <laughs> I, Juita, I do miss the late 90s of message boards and chat rooms, uh, but I also acknowledge that even then it was an awful place. Yes, it, it has always been an awful place. It has been a terribly great place and a terribly bad place, and that's just been the nature of the internet. <laughs> it's the wonder and beauty of the internet. All right, Yay! let's log off on this topic. Coming up next, the failure of Lynx Airlines raises questions about the viability of budget airlines in Canada. Why can't they get off the ground? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. 
Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.